Welcome to Altamar. We're going to navigate the high seas of global politics. My name is Mooney Jensen, and with me is my co-host Peter Schechter, and we're going to captain this boat for you for the next half hour or so. Join us and please go to iTunes, Stitcher, or your podcast app of choice and leave a rating and a review. We would really love to hear your feedback and tell us if you like our navigation. Now today we're going to talk about Narendra Modi, the Prime Minister of India. Modi is a leader of, as everyone knows, the world's largest democracy, a man who came into power with very large promises. India is the power of, of the subcontinent, a billion plus Indians who are competing with China for leadership of Asia. Now, Modi was going to be the man who would finally harness India's untapped potential. India has always been the giant that is sleeping on that side, like Brazil has been the sleeping giant in Latin America. But Modi's business reforms were supposed to supercharge the economy. His tough line against Pakistan and China would, was going to make India into a true world power. Finally, Indians hoped that after the corruption and the dynastic inbreeding of the Congress party, Mahdi and the BJP party would bring development, prosperity, and goodwill for, to those ignored by the Gandhi dynasty. So four years later, Muni, we have seen that these extra high hyperdrive expectations seem to have been a little bit deflated and let down. It's not that India hasn't grown. Indeed, in 2017, it's been the fastest growing economy in the world. But India seems just ready to disappoint expectations and particularly with some worrying new trends, in particular this rapid upsurge of Hindu nationalist rhetoric and violence, which is really, really disconcerting. And we're going to look at whether Modi's government is falling short both domestically and internationally. Are they punching at the weight they, they should be punching? And we're also going to look um, uh, as to whether we should be all be worried about what's coming in the Hindu nationalism ext extremism that his party has spurred on and whether we can expect more of it as Modi grasps for anything to rally voters ahead of next year's elections. But we're not going to do this alone. We're going to invite Sadanand Tume with us, who is an Indian writer, a journalist based in Washington, D.C., who writes a lot on Asian affairs. He's a prolific writer, commentator, expert on Indian issues. His essays, op-eds, and reviews have been published in the Washington Post, Forbes, Commentary, Yale Global Foreign Policy, and Sadanund is going to walk us through where he sees India and the Modi government going. Peter, because it's hard to tell whether Modi has been this incredible success story or a giant disappointment. He came into office, as we've said, capitalizing on frustration that's pretty much a constant in Indian society. And Indians are resentful of the fact that they're perpetually this land of untapped potential. And they're culturally rich, they're very attractive for tourism, they're amazing human capital, and they're demoralized to see that that never translates into economic prosperity that one would expect. So the, here comes Modi with all of his expectations, and seeing the juxtaposition with the next door neighbor, it really doesn't help. So India and China have had the same GDP in 1950, but today China is five times larger with almost exactly the same population. Tough deal. But we, we shouldn't we shouldn't just throw everything out. I mean, I think Mo Modi has some pretty considerable bragging rights under his leadership. India's GDP growth is today at 6.5%. It's lower than last year. Indeed, it's, I think it's lower than in the last five years. But 
6.5% is a massive growth rate. Um, it's, it's really is, you know, almost Chinese growth, growth rates. Um, you know, and foreign, foreign direct investment inflows have increased. The stock market is strong. And by historical Indian standards, significant steps have been taken to open up India's traditionally very closed economy. Now, I say by historical standards because really by international standards, I mean, if you compare it with Korea or Ghana or, or Colombia, uh, India remains a profoundly closed economy. You see, when things in India are going fine, they certainly aren't splendid and they certainly come nowhere close to this giant seismic shift that everybody expected and that certainly Modi promised four years ago. So the question that we all have to ask ourselves is, has he really changed India all that much? Well, one thing is true is that if uh, elections were held today, he would win. He's undoubtedly the most popular politician in the country. But elections are not being held today, and it's not that clear that he's in in elections next year, it will be a slam dunk because there are some signs of slippage. Consumer confidence is down. Unemployment has risen. The last two years have been a lot less promising than his first two years, and people are getting tired. So I think it's just worth just taking a step back and looking at the major economic issues. Modi took two big risks in implementing huge structural changes that the Indian economy needed badly. But the implementation of these reforms were hasty, they were clumsy, and the timing left a lot of people in the dust. I mean, there was just a lot of noise that happened as these things uh, got implemented. The first one was this now, by now, it's infamous demonetization in November 2016, Modi suddenly announced on live TV with really no, completely taking a country of a billion plus people by surprise that you know large banknotes would become invalid at midnight the same day and he gave Indians 50 days to deposit or exchange them. So demonetization in a poor cash-driven economy where 1.3 billion people uh, exist, only 25 million of them have credit cards, was not exactly the most well-thought-out thing. And the poor, of course, who bears the brunt of this? The poor. You know, they were... They were um, uh, held, you know, most of the cash, so therefore held the brunt of the damage. India's GDP growth forecasts had to be cut as a result, and and informal businesses, in particular, the ones who don't deal with electronic, uh, in the electronic economy, were hit particularly hard, leading to a jump in unemployment. And needless to say, um, when you when you uh, create a problem in the cash economy, you also sort of create a problem in barely making a dent and achieving goals, your, your goals of cracking down on corruption and illicit cash. But don't you think there's a timing issue as well, Peter? Because less than a year later, before anyone had a chance to recover, he introduced a massive and very confusing, massive is your word, by the way, it's uh, rubbing off on me, confusing new goods and services. I like, I like big words. Well, was that, massive, it was a gigantic, very huge. Complicated new goods and services tax. And it was necessary for India, without a doubt, in the long term, but again, the timing couldn't have been worse. Small businesses suffered the most. Unemployment jumped. And he's made very little headway in reforming in India's labor laws. Now, reforming labor laws is certainly not easy, but he's not been as successful as he promised. And the manufacturing revolution he promised is also not yet to be seen. I, yeah, I, it's it's just interesting. He's such a he's such an interesting and controversial character, you know. And 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 so you'd expect these massive seismic changes. There it goes again, the massive. Well, there you go, and seismic, by the way. <laughs> but but even in foreign policy, you haven't had these really huge successes. 
that he's promised. I mean, certainly relations with the United States are important in India, but mostly because the United States is just a balance and a bulwark against the perpetually big whales that are uh, of Indian foreign policy, which are Pakistan and China. And so let's just let's take a look with China, because here, too, we see progress but really not massive change. So China and India are the two nuclear-armed countries who together comprise about a third of the world's population and nearly a fifth of its global GDP. And what happens between these two countries matters a ton. Last year, we saw intense border standoff in the highland area between these two countries. It lasted 73 days. There was no exchange of fire, but literally there was exchanges of stones and the rhetoric was getting hotter and hotter, and the two armies were there at the border looking and staring each other down. And the bo- that border area suffers from residual tensions that have never gone away from a war that they fought in 1962. But the border these days, you know, is just a good symbol of the significant low point of where China and India are. And she and Modi had a meeting uh, a few weekends ago, part of the recent ramping up of a dialogue. And it's both hard to believe that they were meeting and taking pictures a year after things were so tense. But, you know, I, I think, you know, she is certainly very aggressive about his diplomacy. And he wanted to meet with Modi and they got together. They both understood that they have a role, both of them, to reduce risk and tension in the region. And China needs as favorable a regional environment as possible as Trump keeps threatening all of his trade war and the TPP becomes a reality. And Modi needs to prevent external shocks and not further slow India's economy down ahead of elections. So he's, he doesn't want any of his domestic reforms to sputter. Uh, because he's he, he he doesn't want more battlefronts and particularly not battlefronts on the outside. But I think that the the foreign policy makes sense and the cooling of tensions for geopolitical reasons makes sense. But it may not last long because China has been rubbing India the wrong way with its ramped up outreach in the neighborhood through the Belt and Road Initiative, which India did not subscribe to, and especially with infrastructure projects in Pakistan and Sri Lanka. It's also stepping up its military presence in the Indian Ocean, so it's a big threat to India. And that, again, is is the problem. There's been lowering tensions with China, and the pictures show it, but there's also uh, a little bit of concern that Modi's tough anti-China stance is is just considerable hot air. And most everybody in India knows that China's military, intelligence, foreign assistance spending is leaving India far behind. Defense spending is three times uh, China's three times the size of India in spending. And things with Pakistan aren't so great either. The India-Pakistan dialogue is all but dead and the line of control has become more hostile and India has seen more and more personnel deaths. So as I was doing research for this episode, I came across a great piece uh, by Girish Shahane, Peter, in Quartz India, in which there are some very clear parallels between Modi's behavior on the global stage and Mr. Donald Trump's. And he says, and I quote, Modi bet early in his tenure that he could, by sheer force of personality, shift India-Pakistan relations into a smooth track. Is anyone reminded of um, North Korea and the United States? I continue to quote, once his off-the-cuff decision to stop by Pakistan for tea with Nawaz Sharif produced no, no practical improvement, his lack of a plan B was exposed. The trajectory of India's worsening relationship with Pakistan hints at the downside of having a larger-than-life figure like Modi at the helm. Everything becomes about him in a way that isn't in the nation's best interest. 
it's really it's really interesting because this guy so dominates the headlines in in India and when he travels the world, you know, both from from the way he talks and the size of his country and and you know he, he that even even with small neighbors, I mean, it's not only with the giants. Pakistan and China that there are problems, but he's had missteps with others in the region like Nepal in 2015. Delhi took issue with Nepal's newly passed constitution and reportedly it demanded changes. And when that was quickly rebuked by Kathmandu and most of them, you know, and most other Nepalis, India began an unofficial blockade that Kathmandu says is fueling a humanitarian crisis in the country. Now, obviously, Nepalis didn't take kindly to the optics of Delhi sending diplomats to request changes to their constitution, and the country is now actively building closer ties with China. So certainly, that was that move was certainly can't be seen as in any type of success. And you know, while Modi has without a doubt, continued to improve India's relations with the United States. He started with Obama and he's continuing it with, uh, with Trump. He seems to have been less successful in raising India's statures on some of the other critically important regional issues. You know, whether it's, whether it's economic and foreign policy, the stumbles are some of the reasons why people have become very concerned that he might take a hardline turn towards Hindu nationalism, something that merits taking a closer look at because it's had some worrying effects on India as of late. So the Diplomat, which is an online magazine that tends to follow India and the subcontinent pretty closely, the, the Diplomat interviewed a student who subscribes to the Hindutva ideology that is now becoming this cause for concern. And this student is a self-described Hindu nationalist and having been trained in India's fundamentalist school, Hindu schools, um, it's worth listening to this student to have a glimpse of where the world view is of people uh, that are really motivated by some of the BJP's more extreme views on this. And, and listen to his views and opinions on Muslims in India. Why did Trump Because anti-Muslim image. पुतिन क्यों इतने सालों से रशिया पे राज कर रहा है क्योंकि वो उसकी एंटी मुस्लिम इमेज है जर्मनी की चांसलर जो है वो लेडी Why did Trump win in the US because of his anti-Muslim image Why has Putin been ruling in Russia for years because of his anti-Muslim image uh, The German chancellor I can't recall her name she sent 1800 Muslims from Libya to jail She gained a lot of popularity for doing so During the Samajwadi party's tenure in Uttar Pradesh they built a mosque on every street corner over 5 years They infuriated the others by such appeasement so if Muslims are being beaten up, it must be because people are angry. I don't find anything wrong with that. I believe that if you do not have any option and it's about your survival, then we have to pick up weapons. Bhagwan Ram and Guru Gobind Singh used to say, when folding your hands doesn't work, pick up weapons. When the administration is fully corrupt, what would you do? Is the administration still corrupt? Yes, it's still corrupt, but we have an influence now. Who's we? We, meaning those of us to support the BJP. Now, of course, not all subscribers to this ideology are this extreme, but we will see in a second that many of the top 
BJP politicians in recent years have been echoing rhetoric that's not very far off. So, Peter, you talked about Hindutva, this ideology that seeks to establish the hegemony of Hindus in the Hindu way of life. And it seeks to define Indian culture in terms of Hindu values. It's a departure from the way the Indian democracy was created and developed. And, of course, this has translated recently into very pronounced discrimination against Muslims and Christians. And it's interesting how Modi has appropriated, I would say politically, the nationalism that's always been present in modern India and completely turned it on its head. And Indian nationalism, which was always sort of a celebration of India as a pluralistic, secular, tolerant place, has morphed into this idea of Indian exceptionalism that um, is no longer secular and pluralistic, but now it's very much driven by the, the Hindutva culture and ideology. So this subcontinental version of the tribal politics that's shaken so much of the world, Modi and the BJP are shifting from Indian nationalism to Hindu nationalism. This is important. It's uh, putting in a very strong ideological tint on the Indian democracy and fomenting this idea of Indian exceptionalism where in India is not exceptional because it's modern and pluralistic, but because it's Hindu. So where does this leave the 14% of India population that is Muslim? Muni, this, this has just been brought home to us now in the last couple of months in ways that really, I, I, I just totally take your point here about how India has changed uh, the way it is seen throughout the world. Because certainly, you know, there was a lot wrong with India like there is wrong with many countries in the world. But one of the things was always the, the sense of tolerance and at least striving for tolerance that was important with India. And now the newspapers are littered. I mean, I remember just, just in the last few months the case of this poor eight-year-old young girl named Asifa in, in Kashmir where she was raped and murdered by seven men. There have been, you know... The, numerous articles over the past four years about so this this strange word called beef lynchings in other words anybody that has is either slaughtering beef selling beef buying beef uh, somehow gets uh, gets lynched there have been anti-muslim riots there have been burning of mosques and homes of muslim leaders and of course there's this infamous quote from the current chief minister of uttar pradesh who said that if muslims kill one hindu man we will kill 100 muslim men and and you know the, the chief minister of uttar pradesh is not some small backwater place this is a very important guy who has one of the most important positions in this country he governs india's most populous state with a population larger than that of brazil for example i mean uttar pradesh has 215 20 million people uh you know if Staying on that Brazil comparison, uh, all of that happening, all of those people existing in an area that is smaller than the state of Sao Paulo. And it's not just violence, but it, it's also erasure. I mean, Uttar Pradesh has removed, for example, the Taj Mahal, the Taj Mahal from its official tourism brochure. I mean, it's ridiculous. Something totally unthinkable before now. Why did they remove it? Because it was commissioned by a Muslim emperor under the BJP's Hindutva rules. That makes it un-Indian. The Taj Mahal, therefore, is un-Indian today. It sums up perfectly. All this is really a symbolic summation of how dangerous and how alienating this revisionist ideology is. And what a lot of people now fear, as we've, we've started to, to say and, and, and 
and mentioned a couple of times, is that Modi is going to embrace this hardline Hindu nationalism more and more as he needs to rally his base around him because he has not met the really out of out of huge expectations, the out-of-control expectations that he himself set for his government, and huge swaths of the Indian populations are understandably now on edge because of what can potentially happen in the next couple of months as we enter the election season in India. So to help us understand what's been going wrong for Modi and what's been going right, where Hindutva fits into all this, and where we can expect India to go as we move towards the next election, let's bring Sadanand Tume. Sadanand lives in Washington, D.C., where he's considered one of the top go-to experts on India. He's a resident fellow at the prominent American Enterprise Institute, where he writes about South Asian political economy, foreign policy, business, and society, and with a focus, obviously, on India and Pakistan. Sadanand served as the India Bureau Chief for the Far Eastern Economic Review and as the Indonesia correspondent of the Far Eastern Economic Review and the Wall Street Journal of Asia. He writes regularly for the world's leading newspapers and magazines and is a South Asia columnist for the Wall Street Journal. He's a frequent guest on all major global TV channels and was a Bernard Schwartz Fellow at the Asia Society in Washington, D.C. His political travel narrative about the rise of fundamentalism in Indonesia, the world's most populous Muslim country, is titled My Friend the Fanatic Travels with a Radical Islamist. It's been published in four countries. Sadnund, welcome to Altamar. It's great to be here. So, Mooney and I have tried to review some of Modi's major foreign policy successes and failures over the last four years. And, you know, the, the conclusion that we've sort of inadvertently come to in our conversation um, has been that certainly Modi has been a political success, but we've asked ourselves whether he's really met all of those supercharged and perhaps exaggerated expectations that he and his party and his followers have set for himself. You know, so I guess the question, just to try to put it all in a few words, Sadhanand, is has Narendra Modi really, to use that phrase that now we all know far too well, has he made India great again? It's a great question, and I have to say your timing is also excellent because we are fast approaching the fourth anniversary of Modi's historic election in 2014. So what I'd like to do is kind of, you know, break this up very uh, simply and quickly into three parts. Uh, politics, economics, and foreign policy. And I won't spend a lot of time on, 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 on any of these three. Now, politically, clearly, Modi is a huge success. Uh, he won India's first single-party majority in 30 years in 2014. And since then, politically, he has really gone from strength to strength in the sense of uh, conquering more and more states. So the BJP is by far the dominant party in India, not just at the federal level, but also at the state level. And uh, backed by Modi and the, the party president, Amit Shah, who's a kind of Indian Karl Rove figure, they've really perfected the art of winning elections. So in that sense, politically, of course, he has been uh, tremendously successful. Uh, I would argue that he has probably been more successful than people would have imagined. But since we're in Washington and we are interested in policy, I think that's when it becomes a little bit more, more interesting. 
And here there's something of a paradox because uh, if you had spoken with uh, most people before Modi's election, certainly if you'd spoken with me uh, and asked me about expectations, uh, the odds are that uh, most people would have said, I certainly would have said, that he was likely to do well in economic policy and struggle on foreign policy. Uh, and the reasons for this are obvious. Uh, he was best known, perhaps, as an economic administrator before he was elected in 2014. He had run the western coastal industrialized state of Gujarat. He had uh, pioneered this investment summit called the Vibrant Gujarat Summit. And Gujarat under Modi had really become the go-to investment destination, both for foreign businesses and Indian domestic businesses. And in many ways, it was his uh, record as an economic administrator that made Modi uh, acceptable to the world and uh, gave him this platform uh, to launch his uh, bid for national office. On foreign policy, on the, on the other hand, he had, you know, his relationship, particularly with the West, had been quite fraught. Uh, as you're both aware, there had been uh, Hindu-Muslim riots on his watch in 2002 in Gujarat. Uh, more than a thousand people died, about three quarters of them were Muslim. And that had really cast a shadow on how the world saw him, particularly in how the West saw him. Uh, he had been, his visa to the United States had been revoked. He was not able to travel to the U.S. for many years. And all of that may seem like distant memory now. But at the time, you know, this is a person who was coming into office really untested and on the world stage and carrying a fair uh, amount of baggage. Now, flash forward to 2018, and uh, I would say that it, you know things have turned out exactly the opposite of what we had expected. On the economic front, he's been a disappointment. He has not been able to push through the sweeping market-friendly reforms that uh, many people had expected and hoped for. But on the foreign policy front, by and large, he's been quite successful. He's uh, you know struck up a strong relationship with the United States. He has deepened India's relations with Japan. He has managed to kind of uh, work around some kind of relationship with China. It's obviously a challenge for all of China's neighbors, and, that's, and India is no different in that regard. So that's the great paradox. In, in 2014, we would have expected Modi to have been the great economic reformer who fumbled a bit on foreign policy. Instead, we got Modi uh, the the foreign policy practitioner who has fumbled on economics. So ahead of next year's elections, will he, with these mixed results, then double down on Hindu nationalism as a political strategy? I So, you know, Hindu nationalism has always... It's not that Hindu nationalism wasn't there in the 2014 campaign, but it was not foregrounded. Uh, what was foregrounded was his message of development, jobs... Uh, inflation, fighting, and so on. Now, running into 2019, he does not have a great economic record. But I think what he is going to focus on is, uh, there's going to be an element of Hindu nationalism, but I think the main focus is going to be on things like service delivery, uh, benefits for the poor. So, for instance, uh, last week, they reached a milestone where India has now uh, electrified all its villages. It doesn't mean that everybody has electricity. It just means that every single village in the in the country um, has electricity, uh, according to some some percentage. 
So uh, this is obviously something that's been going on for a long time. Uh, and the Modi government has, it's not as though, they, so they took it from something like 96% to 100%. But that's the kind of thing he's going to take to the people. He has given uh, he, uh, hundreds of millions of uh, gas cylinders to poor women. Uh, they have introduced uh, bank, they've opened bank accounts again for hundreds of millions of people. So it's these kind of traditional populist welfare schemes. Uh, they've been on a road building spree. They've been giving poor people toilets. So all of that is going to be, I think, the heart of his campaign. Uh, and in addition to that, um, obviously, there's going to be um, an element of Hindu nationalism, too. But I don't think that that is something that Modi himself is going to lead with. They have other figures in the party who are going to, you know, bang the Hindutva drum, as it were. Well, I mean, let, let me just let me ask you, if I can, two questions all at once. I mean, just to follow up, Mooney's question is, you know, as we've clearly the Western newspapers have certainly been busy with a lot of the uh, the, the problems that have that have come up through uh, because of Hindu nationalism, whether it's uh, the beef lynching, anti-Muslim riots, burning of mosques. And so I guess, you know, the, you seem to be downplaying the role that Hindu nationalism is going to take, or at least that the party will take in terms of really trying to shore up. Because, I mean, as you've described, the disappointment on the economic front, you know, certainly leads him to power up the base in any if he doesn't have economic arguments and you've talked some about some of the populist uh poor oriented issues like electrification but so i guess the, the question is you you seem to be less worried than other people about uh the sort of growing effects of hindu nationalism you you think that the party is going to be able to keep that under control no i'm i'm i am worried i don't see it as going i don't see it as central to his campaign plank. Uh, I think that as a phenomenon, it is certainly something that has grown and it, and it is certainly something that is worrying. Uh, I think the state of public discourse, for instance, on uh, Islam and Muslims uh, is at its lowest ever. Uh, I think that there are many people uh, belonging to religious minorities, particularly Muslims, but to a certain extent Christians as well. Uh, you know, who feel that they are being excluded by this Hindu nationalist project. So there's no denying any of that, and all of that is indeed troubling. But if the if, if what you're asking me is what is Modi going to campaign on, uh, I think what they're doing, they're going to his or his major campaign plank is going to be these kinds of you know these welfareist measures I mentioned. There are other people in his party who are going to kind of you know, take 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 Hindutva, take the lead on, on Hindutva issues. And finally, I think that they are hoping for a stroke of good luck from a court judgment, which would allow them, uh, the BJP uh, government, to begin building a temple uh, in the town of Ayodhya in northern India. And this has long been a very a key Hindu nationalist demand, which is in fact quite uh, popular among large parts of the country beyond the core Hindu nationalist uh, constituency. And I think if they get that verdict from the Supreme Court and are able to actually begin building this temple, um, that automatically will inject a certain Hindu nationalist element to the campaign. 
And and let me just ask about the the these these populist measures that you talked about. I mean, do will, will they mitigate any anger that is that still any residual anger from the seemingly clumsy implementation of the demonetization and the new taxes that that happened uh, in in the past uh, in the past few years? You know, Peter, the jury is still out. You know, one of the things that was most surprising to me that, you know, was that demonetization, which uh, most serious economists would, uh, you know, regard as uh, one of the uh, stupidest things that any Indian government has done uh, in the last 25 years, if not the last 25 years. I mean, I, I always refer to it jokingly as too crazy for Venezuela, because apparently they considered it for a bit and then decided that, whoa, we couldn't, they, they couldn't go that far. Um, but demonetization was surprisingly quite uh, popular among India's masses, particularly in the early months, because th despite the fact that they suffered and despite the fact, as you correctly point out, it was extremely clumsily Im implemented, apart from being a daft idea to begin with, uh, <clears throat> uh, many people, many of the poor saw it as a kind of you know, Robin Hood moment. And here was Modi striking a blow for the poor against the corrupt rich and so on. I think some of the gloss is now off that because it turned out that they were people were expecting to get a lot of money, you know, a windfall. And that windfall never, uh, never materialized. Um, but nonetheless, uh, I think that we have to distinguish between how uh, demonetization was viewed by educated elites and technocrats and so on and how it was viewed by the man on the street. Uh, GST has been hurting small businesses in particular, but, you know, we are yet to see evidence that Modi is in political trouble with voters. Now, let's see, we've seen a few, uh, they've, they've lost a few elections in a few by-elections, which are kind of um, stopgap elections to the Lok Sabha, but I think we're going to have to see over the next uh, three to six months what happens in uh, a few major state elections. If in the next six months, Modi loses a series of state elections, then I think uh, you know it's, everything is open for 2019. If on the other hand, Modi and the BJP continue to win state elections the way they have been, uh, then the party to really worry about is the opposition Congress party. And at this point, I think it could go either way. You've mentioned that uh, Modi has had some unexpected foreign policy successes, yet many charge Modi with bringing relations with Cuba, I mean, sorry, with China to a... Uh, you're, think, to you're thinking about Venezuela exactly. and, and demonetization. So bringing relations with China to a particularly new low. However, last weekend with President Xi was supposed to be a chance to reset these relations. What is your assessment of that meeting? Well, this is a great chance for me to plug my latest Wall Street Journal column, which will be up in about uh, two hours. Uh, you know, it, it was, it's very interesting because uh, Modi has been much more willing to play hardball with the Chinese than, with, than his predecessor, Manmohan Singh, because he has sort of stood for this more muscular approach. Uh, we saw this uh, border standoff last year between India and China in the Himalayas over a piece of territory that has been claimed by both China and John. India was the only major country to boycott the Belt and Road Forum uh, last year in China. Uh, so there's been quite a lot of, uh, of 
friction. And of course, Modi has take, brought the United, brought India closer to the United States and also uh, extremely close to Shinzo Abe's Japan. So this particular sudden visit of his to Wuhan in central China, where he and uh, Xi Jinping spent two days together in these sort of carefully choreographed photo ops uh, interspersed with talks, uh, was a little bit off script because, you know, here was someone who was, at least over the last two and a half years, had taken a fairly hardline stance. And the most common interpretation of that is that he's going into this election and he wants the borders to be quiet because he realizes that uh, if things go wrong, if a border skirmish goes out of hand, uh, that could really, you know, puncture the image that he's created of this, you know, Indian strongman, the guy with the with the 56-inch chest and so on. So uh, that's how uh, that that that's the explanation. Of course, he got a lot of face. Uh, Xi Jinping fetted him, uh, and so you know he he came off. Uh, Modi came off looking good to his domestic audience, but I think for international observers, it was a sign of uh, of weakness, and uh, I would argue it was um, evidence that. Uh, in many ways, Xi Jinping uh, holds cards in India's domestic politics that the Chinese have not held before. Sadhan and Tume, thank you so much for being on Altamar with us. Thanks for having me. So, Peter, as the way things are around the world, I'm certainly concerned about yet another populist, traditional, non-secular um, ideology uh, kind of running wild uh, previously to elections and the impact that could have to human rights and press freedom and all of those liberties that are slowly being eroded all around the world. So my concern is uh, the new election and, uh, and, and doubling down on some of these more radical ideologies. I, I, you know, I, w while I agree with you, Muni, I think that the, the, the fact is the, the man is a political phenomenon uh, unlike anything that India has seen in a long time. I mean, you know, being, having spent most of my life as a, as a guy, as a person, as a political consultant who helps politicians get elected, I mean, this, he clearly has had and touched a, a uh, deep, deep sense of anger and alienation. So I, I, I have to say that, you know, as long as he does not become this, um, uh, the fountain for espousing a lot of this Hindu hatred, I, I have to, I have to say that uh, what the, what we all uh, in the United States and and in Europe have to strive for, and and Japan, which clearly is very important for India, is to try to really continue to push him to moderate. Uh, party leaders and to moderate his party platform, um, you know, we can never let him forget that this is that 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 type of language is unacceptable to, uh, acceptable to us. But I think we have to also recognize that the phenomenon, the political phenomenon that he's become. I've not seen a case in the world where a long-standing leader becomes more moderate, and it scares me that we, uh, hopefully, we won't be talking about him like we have talked about Erdogan in Turkey or about any of the other um, harder line political movements that have taken place lately? Well, I think that the West should take on a very aggressive stance, um, but we all have to recognize that uh, people, people move by, with domestic, uh, by domestic politics and um, 
the the point of what we're trying to say here is that though he has not met all the expectations he certainly seems well on his way to winning the next election so i'm going to take that last word and close it out and say to everybody thanks for being with us and listening to Altamar, and we'll see you next time